Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to On Religion, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Justin Smolin, the host of this episode. I am joined today by Professor Uzfer Moyne, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and Professor Alan Strathern, Associate Professor in History at the University of Oxford. We are in conversation today about their new book, Sacred Kingship Between Eminence and Transcendence, published by Columbia University Press in 2022. So my first question is just about the impetus of the project. I understand, of course, that the immediate impetus was the Conference of Oxford, the origin point of the essays in this volume. I also know, however, Professor Strathern's earlier review of The Millennial Sovereign, which references sacred kingship, eminence, and transcendence. So I was interested if you could recount for the audience how the two of you came together and your visions for the collaboration. Hello, so I'm um, Alan Strather, and I'm one of the authors. And, well, I think it started really when I first came across Asbar's uh, PhD thesis online, and rather unusually uh, wrote him directly about it. It was, it was unusually good for a PhD thesis. And um, and then we, we were in contact, and uh, we realized that our thoughts ran in tandem in various ways. Um, and as I came to Oxford, and I think it, as far it was particularly the occasion of you giving some lectures in Oxford that, that started off the, the project, isn't that right? Yes, uh, yes, this is Asper Moin. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, Adam likes to joke that he discovered me, and in some ways he did. <laughs> uh, but I, I did, he invited me to Oxford, I, I went and gave lectures, and then we discovered that we were, um, uh, actually uh, reading the same things on religion and uh, sort of the long bureau historical sociology of religion uh, we had been simultaneously interested in it and so that started a long uh, sort of intellectual dialogue and uh, a, a friendship developed uh, around that as well so uh, and 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 then uh, when I was invited uh, in 2019, I believe, uh, to the Radha Krishna Memorial Lecture Series uh, at All Souls College. So I was going to be in residence in Oxford for three weeks, and that's when uh, Alan's book was uh, Unearthly Powers uh, was about to uh, to come out. So we decided that this was a good time to uh, do a conference around uh, sacred kingship and. Uh, Oxford is an ideal place because uh, you know we can bring people from uh, both Europe as well as from the from from North America, and we pooled our collective uh, sort of uh, you can say role, academic rolodex, and we decided that uh, we wanted to really have a uh, a strong conversation across the disciplines, and. Uh, <laughs> I think that the thing that was different about this particular conference was that uh, uh, we decided to write a framework paper, uh, a manifesto, 
which becomes the first chapter of uh, this particular volume, Sacred Kingship in World History. And um, that, that I must say, required, I had to convince Alan because, you know, that was a major effort. We had to put it put in before we called the conference. Uh, and But it, I think it really worked well because it allowed us to put a framework together that then uh, we could ask people to respond to. It gave everyone a common theoretical vocabulary. So a classicist and somebody who worked on ancient Egypt could talk to somebody in co who was a uh, you know, in comparative literature, and um, so the the conference really went really, uh, very well. So it wasn't, I would say, not a, a typical conference. It was uh, done a little unusually, um, uh, and um, I think the amount of effort we put into curating it, <clears throat> I think, paid off. Well, uh, wonderful. Well, my next question um, is a bit different. So it's about that. Uh, first chapter. Um, so the word provocative occurs a number of times in the preface, introduction, and conclusion. You say, for instance, at the first chapter that it was written, quote, in a deliberately provocative, condensed, and abstract manner. So in this respect, I wanted to invite each of you to discuss whether or not you see yourselves as scholars working against the grain in some sense of your own respective disciplines and fields, and who or what you see your primary foils to be. And uh, just a suggestion, but surely a distaste for generalization in the comparative enterprise might be one foil. Yes, I think you're, you know, you're, you're right there. Um, and we, we definitely knew that what we were doing um, felt transgressive, I think, both in the field of history and in the field of, of, of religious studies. I think there was no one general body of scholarship that we were, um, that we had in our sights. And there's more just a, a sense of a, of a general set of tendencies or, or, or instincts which arise out of how people are trained now. Um, and it seems that the way that you gain scholarly capital is by deconstruction and by critique. You know, that's how you show that you're a competent, young or even established scholar in the humanities is to, um, is to display skepticism towards precisely the kind of model building that we found exciting and really just the um, just just wanted to take the opportunity to look at to look at the very big uh, the very big picture. Yes, I'll echo that. the The long durée and comparative approach uh, that we used to frame the conversation and derive analytical categories from, uh, as you probably know, are currently not in vogue. Uh, and in fact, were frowned upon at the turn of this century, right? Uh, and uh, and I think a key word that uh, Alan used here is model building. Uh, you know, I've I've been in the Department of Religious Studies for ten years now, and and I often teach our incoming uh, PhD students first seminar on theory and method. And uh, the the general trend in the field is to to, to uh, teach critique. Uh, critique of uh, previous theories, and uh, one of the things I started doing in, uh, in in my theory and method seminar was to say, well, how about we first learn to build models before we critique them? And we very quickly realized that very few students come into the program learning how to build models, how to think sociologically, and uh, it's the it's the long durée uh, sociological approach, especially the work of Robert Bella. Uh, that uh, that 
you know, I, I began to use to, to, to both show what model building, but also as well to get people to, to think that it doesn't matter whether you're doing in, studying religion in, in ancient times or you're, you're an ethnographer, there are some common conceptual categories that 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 uh, you you can have to 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 talk across disciplines and across time periods and geography. So, uh, so that was an experience that I think uh, uh, both of us brought into uh, in, in into this conversation. And uh, I would say that you know we we felt that the predominant theories in the field that that are being uh, taught and and discussed and used in the last twenty years or so. Uh, have gotten bogged down a bit in in rather abstract notions of post-modernity, post-colonialism, post-secularism, etc. And that scholarship is in danger of losing sight of fundamental problems that still remain open and need to be engaged with. And, and that's something that we try to do in this book. Wonderful. Yeah, well, I think that's um, what makes the book uh, sort of so exciting, at least uh, speaking for myself. I mean, <clears throat> kind of speaking personally, I think as a kind of University of Chicago, uh, sort of historian of religion, introduced you get introduced to a lot of models, but then you're also kind of told, well, they're all defunct, and you know you can't use any of them, and you should be attacking them. So it's this like strange kind of like you know in between. But that that brings me to my uh, next question, which is um, about the kind of uh, sort of uh, possible, at least you could frame it as such, like crisis in the field of religious studies. So uh, the field of religious studies has famously been unable to define its object for the last several decades. Generally, my generation of historians of religion were told ever since the demise of Clifford Geertz's theory of religion as a cultural system. So the introductory chapter, once again, sets out what it calls a heuristic definition of religion and references Professor Strathern's earlier suggestion that religion may be difficult to define because it contains two opposing tendencies, eminence and transcendence both of which are importantly tied up with approaches to community, hierarchy, and political authority. So I'll ask you something about these uh, polarities in a moment, but first I wanted to ask about the intended implications of your approach for a religion's Wissenschaft more broadly. Do you mean to suggest, as I think one well could, that approaches to religion and or politics that neglect, in a phrase, political theology are defunct, and more broadly, are you offering our field a way out of its definitional predicament? Or is this a more limited heuristic approach for those wanting to study sacred kingship? So I'll go first. Um, uh, this is a, a complex question to answer, but I'll, I'll begin by answering it in a word and say, yes, uh, we think we have found a way out of the problem of defining religion. And uh, I would say that sacred kingship uh, is a key part of the solution. Now, the question is, what's the, what's the relationship between sacred kingship and political theology? And the way I would put it is that the concept of political theology is really derivative of the practice of sacred kingship. And the latter, uh, we argued in the book, is fundamental for understanding what has broadly been called religion, right? So I think political theology is is theorized or conceptualized out of the practice of citizenship and uh, and religion now as as Geertz argued in his heuristic definition, uh, which works just fine as far as I'm concerned as an entry into the problematic, uh, is born as a solution to existential concerns. 
right? So religion is 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 really uh, you know simply put a, a solution to or a response to existential concerns. What we are saying here is that political organization in any human society is also a response to existential concerns, no matter what the scale and type of society. So that's, I think, a, a constitutive connection of, of what we would call politics and what we would call religion. Uh, so the, the reason we use the term heuristic is that we wanted to provide uh, a dynamic framework that had multiple moving parts, or perhaps uh, the right word is lenses, uh, which could be used based on the context and phenomenon being studied. For instance, uh, you know, reform movements in religion that motivate disciplined ethical behavior and new forms of consciousness typically arise out of what we would call the transcendentalist impulse. While those movements that lead to the development of concrete or material forms of sacredness, such as temples, relics, pilgrimage sites, are best thought of as immanentism at work, right? So these are two very different things, but there is a relationship between the two. And organized religions often have a merging of, uh, often merge these two types, depending on when, where, and how one happens to observe. So that's uh, that's what we really wanted to provide, a dynamic model of, of looking at this interaction. Yes, I think I'll just... Um chip in a little bit to say that um yeah i think it's perfectly possible to to provide um you know decent definitions of terms like like religion just in the same way that any other analytical concept i'm not really quite sure why religion gets placed in this especially problematic category unlike all of the other you know terms that we use in our everyday analysis yeah such as history politics uh literature uh all the other disciplines, something like the economics. Well, I am uh, very much in sympathy with uh, that uh, the approach that you're outlining, and um, uh, yeah, what Professor Strather just said. Um, I've never really understood why religion is a special case, um, other than maybe that <clears throat> you know it's a one of the master categories, and and people are it's. The, perceived to have played fast and loose with it and in, in various ways in the past. Um, but uh, this brings me to the other, uh, I guess, um, cate master category in the title, which is uh, world history. So uh, the introductory chapter champions one particular vision of the task of global history against another more popular or widespread approach, which you term connected history. Um, so this is a bit of a shorter question, but would you be willing to talk through this distinction for the audience if if you think that there is a a sort of a um distinction there to be talked through yeah there's a really important distinction and actually often when people talk about global history what they're really talking about is connected global history because that is 90 percent or more of of what comes under that that rubric um and connected history is really the kind of early history of globalization and so it's, you know, it's about the movements of ideas or goods or, or, or people or viruses around the planet and then around newly expansive um, geographies. And, um, you know, that, it's very good. We both, we, we both uh, think that connected history is a, a useful methodology. As has used it, I've done some work which can count as connected history. 
But here we're making an approach for a, a very distinct method, which is about taking un, apparently unrelated uh, cases and sitting them side by side in order to make history make sense in, in quite a new way. So that, so that you genuinely can, that can make Inca kings sit alongside, you know, ISIS commanders in a sort of meaningful manner. Um, rather than a, a miscellaneous one. Now, now the, the vast majority of comparative history that does exist has, has related to the fields of, say, economics and, and politics and military matters. And the first thing that happens when you try to systematically do this in the field of cultural or religious history is that you can't revel in the sort of emic concepts that most specialists deploy. Most specialist job is to explain the distinctiveness of the particular concepts that are used by the people that they're studying. But as a comparativist, you can't do that, and you have to be, you know, you have to develop concepts that that can speak to the to the diversity of cases that you're that you're looking at. Um, so a you know potential disadvantage of that is that you sometimes have to come up with new terms and terms which can look like jargon, so they can require a bit of extra work from from the reader but the advantage is that you create a language that the you know people from very many different specialisms can can that uh, all participate in yeah i mean i i think alan's the the the, the real expert here um but but i'll talk about my own experience my, my first project uh, as you might know is I was trying to expand the arena of, of Mughal history uh, or understanding the Mughal Empire by uh, looking at Iran and Central Asia and essentially arguing that we can't understand what happens. I mean, we can't understand the nature of Mughal sacred kingship without understanding what happens in Iran under the Safavids uh, and, and the early Timurid history. Now, in fact, in my current work, I've been arguing that there's a, there's a much deeper connection between uh, Mongol and inner Asian experience uh, of the Islamic world and what the Mughals do in India later on. So there, there is something really to be said for breaking down these geographical specializations and, and ranging broader in, in, in a connected manner and taking sort of making bigger risks in, in um, going out of your, in your specialization. But I think, uh, and and I would credit Alan for introducing me uh, to to the comparative uh, global method, uh, which is exciting because suddenly now you have the tools to say, all right, well, if this was happening in 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 Mughal India, can we learn from the Qing example or what is happening in Europe uh, and and or even Japan and and uh, bring the two cases together? What's the how do you develop the the theoretical model or vocabulary? To, to discuss these cases and you know it it opens up new insights that just a straightforward historical approach uh which remains bound within a context uh, does not so i think there is there is value uh in 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 both approaches but we can't shun one one over the other or one for the other uh wonderful well uh my next question is about um I guess one particular axis of kind of comparativism, which is between the uh, modern and the pre-modern. So the volume includes an essay by Faisal Devji on Al-Qaeda and others that follow developments up into modernity. But I think it's fair to say that uh, you focus the lion's share of your attention, at least on the pre-modern. 
<clears throat> so in the introduction, you affirm both the secularization thesis and its critics. You suggest at one point that we have sustained another axial turn, albeit one that has produced its own equivalence to various forms of imminent and transcendent styles of kingship in the way of fascist, authoritarian, liberal democratic, and anarchic political theories, commitments, and attitudes. Yet you also associate the preponderance of democratic modes of legitimation with a more thoroughgoing disenchantment and suggest that, quote, something massive has changed. So in view of this, I'd like to ask how, in your view, a historian of religion who studies either one side or the other, the modern or the pre-modern, should ideally go about their work. Is it possible to be a good historian of the pre-modern while ignoring the politics of the present? And if not, what sort of naive or wrong-headed perspectives on this politics or on the rupture continuity question itself should we avoid? So we are uh, pre-modernists and have to come ha have come to view politics from the perspective of long-term history, right? That that's really, I think, where where we are coming from. But in in, in this uh, sort of journey, uh, we realize that the modern period does have its uniqueness, and that uniqueness, uh, I would say, is the disenchantedness of politics in the global order of nation states and uh, also of intellectual life because of the predominance of science, right? Uh, ha having said that, we must also point out that enchanted or archaic forms uh, of both politics and, and of cosmology lurk beneath the surface everywhere, even, even in the modern period. For instance, the rise of demagog demagogic leaders and of conspiracy-ridden worldviews and I mean, if you if you study them seriously, they remind you of pre-modern religious myths uh, that once enjoyed respectability. Uh, so our social and material conditions may have changed in the last two hundred years, but uh, human psychology has not changed that much, right? So it's, this should be obvious enough. Uh, but the important point to keep in sight is that democracy and liberalism, or even communism, are forms of politics that need a great deal of institutional work to keep them disenchanted. The tendency, I would argue, is for humans to enchant their world, to use symbolic forms to resolve existential problems. And the problem of politics is very much an existential one, right? So modern students of politics should take the long-term view seriously. And once they do, I think they'll realize that the uniqueness and fragility of modern secularism makes actually a lot of sense. So it's both unique, but it's also fragile. They what as far, to restate what as far, you know, said, um, clearly there have been many waves of critique of, of sectorization theory for good reasons. Um, but from the kind of long-term perspective that we were interested in, we, you know, some version of it, I think is, is essential. Having said that, you know, our model, um, is fine with seeing continuity. In fact, in some ways, it helps it helps explain why immunism and transcendentalism are not simply going to, um, to disappear. I think that both Asfar and I, in some ways, feel that asking present-minded questions is not a problem. And we know that many historians are very suspicious of teleology, by which is often meant asking questions about how the world today got to be the way it is. That's, that's seen as a potentially dangerous um, exercise in some corners um but you know asking why 
Islam is the way it is and 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 not and not and hasn't taken another path is is a legitimate question for as far uh for myself you know why do a handful of religious traditions now dominate the planet um when it used to be covered by a by a profusion of different traditions we think those are fine questions um at the same time both us and i are committed to to the strangeness of the past and then feel that sometimes there's a tendency um, in scholarship today of seeing it as a mode of doing politics or of establishing your moral credentials. And for us, that can lead to a quite stultifying and even quite self-contradictory um, approach. So we would like to reserve the right to study the past in a way that does not simply affirm our feelings and our, and our commitments um, in in the present. Um, while being, yeah, of course, understanding that the, the past is only meaningful because of the present. Uh, thank you so much. So um, the next uh, question is sort of a more generalized one. Um, the style of explication in the kind of the framing chapters is one not only of comparison over the long durée, but of ideal types, generalized concepts, and polarities, which are themselves frequently qualified and combined. I think the volume as a whole uses this toolkit to great effect, but given that applying these typologies and oppositions rigidly can, as you write, sometimes be unhelpful in concrete cases, especially given that after the Axial Age, no pure forms of imminent or transcendent kingship exist, you use the metaphor of the accretion and therefore preservation of layers when discussing this. Um, or at least they don't generally, pure forms don't sort of begin to fade. Uh, can you say something about how you found thinking in this sort of systematic, generalized, but also conceptually polarized manner to be helpful for your own work, including your work on local or particular contexts? And to kind of put a finer uh, point on it, outside of contributing to a volume such as this one, how might a specialist of a particular period and region apply your methodology and framing in their own scholarship? So I maybe I should lead off by, by saying that that the pure forms of immanentism do do survive long after the axial age, including forms of uh, divinized kingship. So the Europeans discover it when they reach the New World among the Mashika and the Incas, and they re they find it again when they reach a state like Benin in West Africa in the 16th century, and then when they reach Hawaii in the 19th century, again we find a quite pure form of immanentism with elaborate forms of divinized kingship, and actually. In all three of those cases, we also find forms of human sacrifice, which is not not coincident. Or we could consider the eruption of the Mongols into the Islamic world as the intrusion of a kind of imperial imminentism, um, as some recent work has shown, which has a number of different transcendentalisms um, competing to, to to accommodate and and to to to, to uh, uh, contend with that this this eruption. Um, so for me, this typology allows us, does allow us to see a whole uh, array of different patterns in, in world history. And the one that's really concerned me is, is the vulnerability of immanentism. Why do these systems which rule the planet, why do they disappear? Why, why are they internal? And so I have uh, my, my next book, which is just, just completed, is looking um, very specifically, almost micro-historically, at certain specific occasions like Congo in the 1480s and 1490s 
and asking, you know, why did the king of Congo convert to Catholicism as he did? Why did the king of Thailand in the 1688, um, why was there a tremendous rejection of Catholicism um, and so on? So I think, you know, at least in my work, we, we can we can um, put these terms to some very, very specific uh, uh, jobs. Having said that, this work is, it is, sorry, this terminology is is um, designed fundamentally to do comparative work and to do very long-term work. Um, and so we cannot, you know, for the specialist, it may or may not be helpful. Um, one thing that I would say is that for every specialist encountering this sort of approach will at least ask you about your own field of specialism and ask you to think, consider how how unique is it really? Or is what you're looking at a sort of interesting variation on, on some broader themes? Yes, I would uh, point to the dynamic nature of our framework, uh, which is really meant to sort out religious phenomena into categories uh, so we can understand what is central at a particular moment and what is peripheral. Uh, to go to Alan's example of uh, you know the impact of the Mongol uh, uh, empire or rule on Islam, I mean the Mongols uh, did not convert for several generations. Mongol kings did not, but eventually when they did convert, they brought their preference for eminentist religion with them. So uh, there is ostensibly a link between that and the rise of shrine-centered. Uh, sainthood in Islam, I would argue, uh, there's a preference for immanentist religion. Uh, if it's if it's got political backing behind it, then it it will proliferate. Um, and uh, you know, a simpler example is that when one goes to the Hajj, uh, it is to be closer to the sacred. Uh, it's not to impose a righteous order on the world. So uh, these are very different things, uh, but. They are psychologically and uh, with and, and you know with, with different psychological and, and sociological implications, but they are interlinked. Somebody who has gone on Hajj might, when they come back, be might more be more inclined uh, towards righteousness uh, and and impose that on others. So, uh, uh, in my own work, I focused on sainthood and kingship in Islam to demonstrate how these eminentist forms counterbalanced and at times effectively negated uh, the doctrinalism and legalism of Islam, uh, which forms its very important uh, transcendentalist side. Thank you so much. Um, well, this next question may be a bit uh, more speculative, but I wanted to ask about pluralism and, broadly speaking, political theology. So, as theorized by Carl Schmidt, political theology conventionally assumed a fixed backdrop of metaphysics or theology, which determines the, con the structure, I'm sorry, of concepts of political authority for a given period and region. I've always found this a little confusing to apply because in many historical contexts, including the milieu of early modern Islamic South Asia in which I work, you don't really find a stable fixed backdrop of kind of metaphysics or shared images of the world, but rather a diversity of traditions and images of the world coexisting. So in light of this problem, I wanted to ask about how the model you propose would treat religious pluralism and or interfaith interaction. So while there's obviously some comment on religious pluralism and polity in the volume, uh, most of the interactions addressed in the intro and conclusion are not between religions as such, but between ideal types and political theological epistemes or 
regimes, transcendentalism, immanentism, uh, tendencies, or righteous and divinized king, kingship, etc. So I guess the question is, how much does this sort of uh, framing map neatly or messily onto interreligious interactions such? Yes, that's a that's really a complex uh, question, and you know, there's reams of material written on Gard Schmidt. But I think that the the heart of the or the crux of the question is what exactly is is does Schmidt mean by religion? And here I would say that you know you use the word interfaith. Uh, let, let's dissect that for a moment. Uh, in our model, faith would uh, be best understood as a transcendentalist way of describing religion. Uh, that it assumes that religion is about the intellect. It is about holding a particular doctrine or belief in your head. Uh, faith is also something that requires conversion, uh, which is the rejection of one's existing cultural ties and memories so that new ones can take their place. Um, wherever there is faith, there is conversion, which then leads to the problem of uh, tolerating uh, or the problem of tolerance. Uh, without this form of religiosity, Usually, the problem of tolerance isn't quite the same as as how we come to think of it uh, in in this paradigm. Now, this intellectualization of religion is post-axial and depends on the the technology of the book uh, that allows for you know certain abstractions to have a long life uh, and and value in 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 social and political uh, life. So, and while it has effectively changed the world, it also has important limits beyond which it begins to fail. Because religion cannot stay intellectualized, it must embed and become part of the unthought. So, this is the long-term approach uh, about thinking about religion and politics, religion and empire that we are advocating. And if you keep this in mind, uh, Schmidt begins to make sense in a particular way, uh, we have to remember that Schmidt's main, Schmidt's main target is secularism, right? He was against uh, the Enlightenment uh, and, the, and the secular world. What he really was arguing for was, or what he wanted or desired, was a world in which religion was of primary importance and existed prior to politics. Um, in a word, what he wanted was the world of sacred kingship. That had that seemed to have slipped away at the time, uh, but uh, he didn't really spend much time thinking about the complexities of that world. And it, and if you want to do that, you have to. Uh, we would argue take this long durée approach, and uh, and 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 understand the various components of of what uh, sacred kingship uh, or or this form of religiosity means uh, for politics. And I think that's the background we're offering. Uh, so. When, when Schmidt is read against that, a certain meaning uh, sort of becomes clear. And the problem of secularism, I think, is, is highlighted. Yes, and I would just add that, I mean, in a sense, much of my work is about watching religions interact and trying to explain um, what happens. But I think you're particularly interested in cases where a core culture might happen to draw on you know, various different traditions. I suppose, from my perspective, sensing that the, that the model deals with that and just fine um, is particularly, of course, the more imperial a policy is, the more there are going to be different cons constituencies that the um, the, the the kind of production of royal theatre has to speak to and has to has to enact. 
and um, um, and that's fine. And we have to remember that you know, the Indic transcendentalisms behave differently to the monotheisms in certain way. So for the Indic traditions, com combination is the norm. Uh, we, we can still use our concepts there. So if I'm looking at a Theravada Buddhist polity, it's clear to me that the transcendentalist realm is heavily monopolated by the Theravada tradition and by the Sangha on an institutional form. But in terms of the construction of royal ritual, they will draw on Brahmins for that. And they will, in a sense, immanentize Brahmanism and turn it into a kind of magico-ritual system um, in, a, in a quite profound way. And of course, they're very happy to draw on a whole non-Brahmanic array of deities and divinities and, and suck that into, into the production royalty as well. So, and then of course, if we get into the Mahayana Buddhist world, it's going to be combining with say Shinto in Japan, with Confucianism, with Taoism, and our chapter in the book by Michael Pewitt on China um, it, it is an example of that. So um, the, the interesting, interesting thing is, is that the, the concepts of transcendentalism and immunism can cut across those traditions as well, so that we can see what Buddhism and Taoism might have in common, for example. Uh, no, thank you very much. I think you both did a, a great job of sort of like fleshing out for the audience on um, how that would kind of like work in practice. Um, so in closing, I'd just like to ask both more narrowly what ambitions you both have for this uh, ongoing project of an interdisciplinary world history focusing on uh, sacred kingship, uh, what room you see for expansion or new directions in the future, uh, and more broadly, just what projects you're respectively engaged in academically well this was a, a quite experimental and playful uh, project we wanted to create a grand narrative and set it off into the world and see what happens and we we maybe wanted to create a, a model of um how to bring scholars together and really ask them to speak a a similar language as a collaborative enterprise and, and you know that that's what it is and we shall see we shall see what happens in terms of my own work, I'm interested in another comparative project looking at the way that religion and state interact across the early modern world. And in a way, it was sort of stimulated by this pro project to the sense that, you know, we spend the book thinking a lot about how much political authority has to be conceived in religious terms about pre-modernity. So the obvious question is, okay, so how did that huge boulder get shifted? How did, how did things change? And obviously... You know, the, in putting it like that and presupposing that some kind of sectorization happens, how did sacred kingship and, and monarchy itself get toppled from its normative pedestal? Now, that's a very old question, and vast amounts of scholarship have been addressed to it. And just as we were discussing with Carl Schmidt, it often doesn't take it a rigorous global comparative uh, perspective. Um, in the book, we touch on this briefly, particularly in the last path. Uh, the last chapter. Um, we could look at Robert Yell's chapter on Hobbes, Hobbes, which we see as a sort of uh, a reaction to the excessive transcendentalism that's displayed in the English Civil War. We could talk about the Enlightenment. Um, but we, um, we say that very clearly across the early modern world, we can't generalize to say that there is any real diminution of sacred kingship. Though that tends to happen in a period you know, just after early modernity. But what I very much want to um, ask is whether Asian transcendentalisms 
were producing any equivalent cognitive resources for critiquing and undermining monarchical authority. So we talked at the beginning of this podcast about how most global history is connective history. So what that means in, in intellectual history terms is really a connective history of the consequence of the European Enlightenment. So we have a lot of work looking at how liberal ideas and Enlightenment ideas were very quickly taken up by non-Europeans and repurposed and developed and radicalized. Um, but strikingly absent is a determined consideration of what might have been happening or what could have happened in Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Islam, Confucianism, which could have been used to generate um, some kind of critique of, monarch of, of monarchy or, or some kind of basis for, for radical politics. So, so in, in ways of putting the, this in very grand terms, you know, is there, was there another axial link to modernity other than the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian one? Yes, uh, I'm interested in in many of these, uh, you know, many of these ideas and concepts uh, and models, uh, and in applying them to understand key moments of Islamic history. It is clear to me now that the institution of sacred kingship is an odd fit with the doctrines of Islam, but it is also the case that the religion depended on sacred kingship to expand and thrive, so it produced a massive tension. Uh, and this tension led to a great deal of creativity in pre-modern Islamic institutions, specifically institutions of politics. But this creativity has yet to be fully studied and appreciated, I think, uh, as arising from this intense struggle between transcendentalism and eminentism. Uh, so to give you the example of the long-lasting institution of the Abbasid Caliphate, I mean, it survived for 500 years, but after the first hundred years, it lost political and and doctrinal authority. So, for the rest of the four hundred years, what exactly was the function of the Abbasid Caliphate? Uh, the fact is that you know in the eleventh century, you could not become a king either in Egypt or in India or in in, in Iran or Central Asia without touching the caliph's body, right? So it was an institution that links the political imagination and, frankly, sovereignty, political rituals of sovereignty across the Islamic world, much of the Islamic world. But why was this institution so strong when, when it had no, uh, you know, what we would call religious power or, or um, military power or political power? And the answer is that it, it had become an imminentist institution. It had immense ritual power. Uh, and uh, it was driven by rituals of sovereignty. Now, uh, most of the approaches to Islam would try to understand the institution of the caliph by either studying books of Islamic law or of political philosophy, as if somehow this institution uh, arises from from the scriptural tradition. But in fact, I would argue it's the exact opposite. It it in some ways it it's a counterbalance to the scriptural tradition. Uh, uh, and and it complements it, but does not uh, is not dependent on it, uh, and uh, so so that's just one example, and uh, and you know and to, to generalize from it, I would say a straightforward reading of Islam as a discursive tradition, for instance, or or of a system of virtue ethics will not get us very far, in my opinion. And I think we need to expand our models for approaching it, and and I think uh, you know that that's that's what I'm currently trying to do. 
Well, thank you both very much for uh, your time. It was an honor to meet you both. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us at the uh, New Books uh, Network. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. These were, these were wonderful questions, uh, Justin, and uh, we appreciated the opportunity.